Hello and welcome to the Bunker USA, our transatlantic tunnel bringing understanding between two separate political cultures. I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, America's Supreme Court. It's the ultimate legal body in the world's most powerful democracy, and it has seldom been as contentious as it is today. Since Donald Trump made three hardline conservative appointments to the bench, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, the court has bent hard to the right. It overturned Roe v. Wade and thus universal access to abortion. It enshrined the right to carry a gun outside the home in the middle of an epidemic of mass shootings. And it reversed affirmative action programs that were supposed to work against America's history of race-based exclusion. And it's not just the consistent votes for hard conservative positions that have cast a shadow over the court's built-in Republican majority. There is corruption as well. From Justice Clarence Thomas's questionable property deals and millions of dollars of worth of luxury trips on private planes and super yachts, to his wife Ginny's connection to the January the 6th attacks, to Neil Gorsuch's property sales to an anonymous buyer who turned out to have 20 cases before the court, America's chief justices have seldom been held in such low regard. Senate Democrats are trying to advance a code of conduct for the court, and the Conservative justices themselves are resisting it. As Joe Biden said earlier this summer, this is not a normal court. So how damaged is the Supreme Court? Can Americans fix it, or does it need a radical and complete rethink? I'm delighted to have Brian Class, Associate Professor of Global Politics at UCL, host of the Power Corrupts podcast and writer of the fantastic newsletter ForkingPaths.co, back in the bunker after far too long. Hello, Brian. How's it going? It's wonderful. How are you? Not not bad. Listeners, you may recently have seen Brian on Netflix explaining US politics to Philomena Kunk, so he's well used to talking to people with no idea what they're talking about, like me. Um, <laughs> Brian, um, respect for the Supreme Court is an article of faith uh, to Americans. Is it too much to say that we are in a crisis of confidence with the court? No, that accurately describes exactly what's happening. I mean, in the past, there was a sort of deference that was given to the court. These sort of, you know, nine people, usually nine white men in robes until relatively recently, as though they were sort of gods in, in American soil, right? I mean, it was this, this world of hallowed justices who were sort of above reproach. That has long since uh, died. And I think that when you look at polling, substantial majorities of Americans do not respect the Supreme Court. And the view of it being politicized is overwhelming, uh, both left and right. So that is the biggest problem, I think, is that in the past, anytime that rule of law was challenged, it was sort of one of these things where people said, well, these are the objective adjudicators of American justice. Obviously, there's a certain percentage of the population that never thought that because, of course, they were ruling against women and minorities for much of American history. But that sort of belief among elites has completely eroded. And I think that's the area where it's going to be very, very difficult to repair because politicizing something takes 10 minutes. Depoliticizing something takes a decade or more. So is the establishment of a a long-lasting right-wing majority court essentially the achievement of the Trump years? Is this what the, quote, normal Republicans kind of wanted to use him for? Yeah, there's a lot of people that would say that that was the crowning achievement. And it is the one that is most likely to reshape America for a very long time. I mean, when you look at the age of the justices on the court, I think it's plausible that the current dominant right-wing majority on the Supreme Court will last for I don't know, I'd have to guess 15 to 25 years would be my guess before there's any serious prospect of it changing. That is assuming there's no reform or assuming that there's not an unexpected resignation or death, premature death among the court. But in the past, you know, a lot of the um, less hyper-politicized aspects of the court 
meant that you would sometimes appoint people who were reasonably old because they were very well qualified and very well respected. And now one of the core qualifications for a right-wing justice to be considered is they usually have to be in their late 40s or early 50s. And that is because it's a lifetime appointment and many of them stay on the court until they are on death's door. So, you know, this is something where you, you may have someone like Amy Coney Barrett, who was appointed just before the 2020 election, ruling on American policy for four decades still. And that was a strategic choice the Trump administration made. And many of the Trump uh, supporters would say it was one of his m- most successful legacies of his administration. The lifetime appointment is the thing that you know most of us in Britain who, who know about the, who are aware of these things find so astonishing that you can be there till you die. What else do British people most get wrong about the court and its powers? When you think about uh, any sort of high court in in the UK, you're thinking about something where there's a lot of oversight, there's a lot of scrutiny, and there are systems set up to try to ensure that it is deliberately depoliticized. And so what I think is is difficult to wrap your head around is not just the lifetime appointment. I mean, that obviously has its roots in in a period in which, you know, a lifetime appointment lasted less time, right? I mean, people <laughs> lived less less long and, and also they were appointed later on in their lives. So, you know, a lot of the court, you know, appointees in the very distant past would only be on the court for like 10 or 15 years. That obviously has changed dramatically. But the other thing is that the court is politicized by design in the confirmation process because it is someone who is appointed by the president and then or nominated by the president and then approved by the Senate. And, you know, this is one of those things where in the past there was a filibuster, uh, which basically means in the past, in the past, this used to mean that if you talked for a very long time, you could block the business of the Senate. Now it just basically means that you need, you know, 60 votes in the Senate out of 100 to get any business done that is being filibustered. And fundamentally, this is something where over time it has become more and more vicious. And so when you think about people who end up as judges in Britain, you usually don't know what their viewpoint is on every social issue. In order to be considered to be a Supreme Court justice, you must know, because that is the main criteria by which a president selects a potential nominee is with these various litmus tests on the right. For example, it's a, it's abortion, which is why Roe v. Wade was, was successfully overturned last year, because they had designed this to only have uh, pro-life justices, anti-abortion rights justices selected by the Republican presidents. So the criticism of the court as it stands at the moment, can, it can be very, very crudely divided into criticism of the immediate behavior of this specific crop of judges. And then the thought that maybe there might be something wrong with the principle of an autonomous and kind of unimpeachable court where you are appointed for life and there is no further appeal. Let's, let's look at the first lot first, the, um, the members at the moment. As I mentioned at the top, there's an awful lot of scandal around this, this, this particular crop of judges. But on the political side, we we always hear a lot about activist lawyers from the Republicans. Do we have an activist Supreme Court at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think this this is an interesting term in the context of American politics because the activist courts is usually something that right-wing people in America use to lobby at to lobby at the court, simply because in the 20th century, a lot of social change around things like desegregation, racial desegregation, and some of the protections for racial minorities in the US uh, were enacted by the court. So in the past, this was viewed as something where it was the activist court, that social, you know, the, the, the right-wing people would say it's social engineering. But now, of course, that the right-wing controls the court, they're quite happy to have 
uh, an activist court. And in fact, they, I think, demand it of their justices, which is why they deliberately have a process by which they try to sort of sponsor um, challenges to laws that they think can reshape American society in a way that will last for a very long time. So, you know, I think that's part of the problem. I think the other issue is around the appointments, and that speaks to the current composition of the court as well. One thing that a lot of people in Britain may not know about or, you know, may vaguely understand, but, but don't know the sort of nuts and bolts of, is that when Obama was in his last year as president, he nominated someone named Merrick Garland, who is now the Attorney General of the United States, to be a Supreme Court justice. And the argument the Republicans made at the time was it was too close to the 2016 election. So they couldn't possibly consider him. So they didn't even hold hearings. Now, this was something like, you know, I don't know the exact number of days, but something like 250 days before the election. It was in early 2016. So they denied him on the basis that you can't possibly do this in an election year. It's unfair to the voters, right? Well, then 2020 rolls around. Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed by the Republicans, uh, by the Republicans, I believe, nine days uh, before the 2020 election. So what you have to accept is one of those two appointments should have gone the other way, right? If you have an actual objective baseline, so if you were to say that, yes, we are not going to confirm justices in election years, which is a made up rule uh, that the Republicans invented, if you were to enforce that, then Amy Coney Barrett should not have been appointed and therefore Joe Biden should have appointed the replacement after that election. So one of those two is unfair, right? Like it it should be a 5-4 majority at a minimum rather than a 6-3. Um, But it's also worth pointing out that if Hillary Clinton had won, and remember, she did win the the, the more votes, but she lost the Electoral College, which is what matters in U.S. presidential politics. Um, If Hillary Clinton had won that election, I think we'd be sitting at a 6-3 liberal majority, left-wing majority, for probably 30 years. So, you know, elections matter, and and voting is very, very important in the American system for things beyond the presidency. I want to ask about, about those specific members that we've been talking about. Clarence Thomas. Tell me more about Thomas's dodgy behavior. There's property deals, there's free holidays and free private school tuition fees from a Republican mega-donor. His wife's been uh, implicated both in minimizing the January the 6th attacks and spreading the Trump line that the election was stolen. This seems to be, and if, if any judge behaved like that in the UK, that would be words at the very least. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing where, again, the, the political tribalism that has infected the court uh, means that the conduct of Supreme Court justices ends up being defended by partisans. Um, Clarence Thomas has been controversial from the start. So uh, he he was subject to accusations of sexual misconduct around the time of his initial confirmation hearings uh, a couple decades ago, and ultimately was confirmed despite um, some very moving and difficult testimony um, from one of his alleged victims. Then after that happened, uh, Clarence Thomas, you know, had a sort of strange track record on the court. He very rarely asked questions. Um, and, and often the court's business is through asking questions of competing attorneys, just sort of quietly sat there. So we knew very little about him and his views on things other than in written opinions. Then in the recent last few years, a few damning stories have come out. One is uh, about this came out of ProPublica, an investigative journalism outlet. Um, they, they found basically longstanding ties between a billionaire, na- billionaire named Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas and a complete lack of disclosure. And this is the kind of thing where you know local officials know about disclosure of gifts, especially if they're of high dollar value. How could a Supreme Court justice who's 
the chief, you know, enforcer of rule of law in the United States not be aware of ethical disclosures? It's, it just boggles the mind. So he didn't disclose any of this stuff. And Harlan Crow was involved with various investments that had business before the court. So, you know, he probably should have accused himself. He didn't. And then you also have his wife, Ginny Thomas, who has posted many, many things online and, and various leaks and so on that show that she's a diehard conspiracy theorist, you know, stop the steal pro-Trump acolyte, as it were. It's always difficult when you say to what extent a person's, you know, relatives, you know, end up affecting your evaluation of their public life. But, you know, this is someone who's got his ear, obviously. So it is worrying that at the at the Thomas household, they're talking about these things as though they're truth. So, you know, I, I think this is just indicative of how far the court has fallen. And there's also a dimension here where nobody really looked. I mean, I think that sort of above reproach dynamic was very unhealthy for a very long time, where it's like, these nine people are just sort of like, you know, above politics. That meant the journalists didn't really poke around too much. And when ProPublica finally did, they found a hell of a lot and, and stuff that was very much in the public interest. So I hope it's the beginning of much more accountability journalism for the, for the justices. You just mentioned confirmation hearings. And, and as anybody who's been to see Oppenheimer uh, knows, America loves its confirmation hearings. That wasn't for Supreme Court, but it kind of gave you an image of the, of the, the huge difference between American political culture and ours. In Amy Coney Barrett's hearings, she presented herself very clearly as someone who would not let her devout Catholicism influence her judgments. And then she's confirmed, and then bang goes Roe v. Wade. Is the system geared to deal with people who can essentially deceive the uh, confirmation hearings? Yeah, so I think you know one of the things that happens when a Supreme Court justice is uh, about to be subject to these hearings, which are often very bruising, they're basically coached, right? And one of the things that I think they're told, I mean, I, I'm not in these rooms, but I, I suspect they're told is to not answer just direct questions about how they would rule on cases. And there's sort of a precedent for this, which is the sort of lofty ideal that politics is not supposed to dictate who is and who is not confirmed. And this is the fundamental tension, I think, that's on display in the hearings between the ideal of what the court is supposed to be, this sort of depoliticized, you know, jurisprudence body of intellectual mighty minds, you know, et cetera, and what it actually is, which is effectively another branch that makes the rules and the laws in the United States, and therefore is subject to the prejudices, the partisanship, et cetera, that human beings are subject to. And so, you know, what Amy Coney Barrett would probably say is she'd say, well, it wasn't my Catholic viewpoint that affected my ruling on this. I've long believed that Roe v. Wade was not correct precedent in the law, but you can never know, right? Mm. I mean, at, at, and at the end of the day, what, what people who are affected by the rulings, I think would defensively say is, we don't really care what the reason was. This is a policy that hurts us. And I think that's the issue where, you know, the, the court as this mystique of nonpartisan, apolitical people, it's just a lie. And I think it's better to just acknowledge that and that these are political actors who are appointed through a deliberately political process. And the hearings are also just a sh their show. I mean, it's, it's all for show. What everyone in the hearings is trying to do is to get on cable TV news that night and to break out with a viral moment for social media. All of them know exactly how they're going to vote before they go into the hearings. And you know that tells you, I think, what you need to know, which is that this is a broken system. The 
late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an absolute hero to liberals. But was she wrong not to retire during Obama's second term and give Obama the chance to appoint a liberal judge? Well, I think pretty much everyone on the left would say yes to this. Um, what, what I would say is that what Ruth Bader Ginsburg may have misread uh, are two things. One is who she thought was going to win in 2016. So she may have been banking on the idea that Hillary Clinton would be appointing her successor if it wasn't Barack Obama. And secondly, and I think this is something that's a lesson to operators in American politics more generally, is that the lies we tell ourselves about the way the political system is supposed to work is not how the political system actually works. And so there's a lot of people who are sort of institutionalists in the United States who have faith, you know, which is now unfortunately misplaced, that you know, the wiser, cooler heads will prevail. And even if Trump is elected, the senators will end up reining him in or whatever it is, right? So there were probably people uh, around her, I, I don't know specifically, I'm, I'm speculating, but who might have said, you know, look, there's, there's, there's people in the Senate who believe that this institution is bigger than partisanship and so on. So even if the worst happens and Trump wins, it won't be a disaster. And I think that's, you know, a lesson that, that Democrats have learned the hard way in the last you know, seven years or so is it will be a disaster. And I think that, you know, these, these people are not operating in good faith around the Trump orbit. They are very shrewd operators. They're shameless and they're willing to make, you know, in the case of the Merrick Garland versus Amy Coney Barrett trap that I described earlier, they're willing to make up one rule when it fits them and then discard the rule when it doesn't fit them. And in a democracy, you know, this is the, this is the rub about operating against authoritarian actors is that they don't respond to the rules. It's the fundamental dilemma the Democrats face on a variety of issues is, do you play by the rules when your opponent does not? And that's the debate that a huge number of people are having in the United States right now, because you know fighting dirty uh, against the Democrats is working basically for the Republicans in a lot of ways. I want to move away from the politics of it and look at the, the mechanics of the actual the kind of constitutional machinery. It would be, I should imagine, a taboo to say this in, in the United States, but there is clearly something intrinsically risky about the principle of appointments for life to a body that can't be properly appealed against. Could anybody conceivably raise the the notion that maybe the Supreme Court doesn't work as an institution and ought to be at least modified and uh, you know possibly something even even uh, more severe? Yeah, so I think this is going to be a debate that's increasingly central to Democratic Party politics because. The dynamic now, I mean, you're just going to see a string of socially conservative policies that are out of step with the rest of the public enacted over the next decade in the United States, most likely. Uh, stuff where you know 30 to 40% of the public thinks it's a good idea. And that's a dwindling 30 to 40%, right? Each year, more and more of those people are, are, are dying because it's basically an older, whiter version of what the US should look like. The Democrats have a problem, which is, you know, how do you enact systemic reform or even raise the issue when a lot of this stuff is constitutionally mandated and would require very likely a constitutional amendment. I mean, there's, there's different legal opinions on this. And constitutional amendments are nearly impossible to pass in a polarized environment, right? I mean, you need a huge, huge overwhelming support for it because it has to pass through the states as well as through the Senate and so on. So you have, you have a lot of things that have to line up for this to change. What I would say is that there is a problem that is now probably unsolvable, which is that I don't think the court will ever be seen as apolitical again. And I also think that Democrats are not going to stand for 
20 years of winning elections and not being able to enact policy. Because that's fundamentally what's going to happen here, right? You're going to have Democrats continue, I think, to win a series of elections, not all of them perhaps, but many of them, and then have their policies struck down by a court that is basically operating in, in, in sort of, you know, reflecting 30 to 35% of the public view. And in a democracy, it's just fundamentally untenable for a long time to do that, right? So like even when the society was changed dramatically in the 20th century through the Warren Court, which was, was at the time the most left-wing court, this is the thing that, you know, lots of desegregation rulings and so on, the public supported it, right? I mean, it, it was radical change, but like 60% of the public supported most of these rulings. And exactly the opposite is happening now where 60% of the public opposes them. So what do you do? Well, I mean, if you could wave a magic wand... I think there should be term limits. I think that you don't want them to be tied to presidential cycles, but I do think something like 12 years is a reasonable starting point for a debate, maybe 18 years if you want to go even longer to sort of make it so it's not completely tied to presidencies. There's some other radical proposals out there. New Jersey State Supreme Court, for example, guarantees that there will be a divided court plus one for the sitting governor. So in other words, you've got three people on the left wing, three people on the right wing, always, And then whatever party the governor is appoints the seventh vote. And the good thing about that is that it's never a blowout majority. I mean, the the thing with the court now with the 6-3 majority is that even if you lose one of the justices, even if you persuade one of the right-wing justices to switch sides, you still lose, right? They have a buffer. So that creates problems where there's not even persuasion as a mechanism uh, for the court. So there's things like that that you can you can talk about. The, the, the democratic proposal that is most common is effectively just to increase the number of justices. The problem I see with this is that it's a very short-term policy. Because if you let's say we add, you know, let's say Democrats add three members to the court, and now it's a you know a, a, a six-six split or whatever, or they add four and it becomes a seven-six, so they take the majority. What do you think will happen when the Republicans then have unified control? I mean, they'll, they'll do exactly that, right? So, and, and it will just be a ratcheting effect of extremism and the court will get ever more dysfunctional and it doesn't end in a good way, I don't think. I don't have to go into all the detail here, but my point of view is that you basically want to do that along with systematic reforms so that it's actually fair for the long term. Brian, can you give us a, 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 a quick tour maybe of other ways these issues have been dealt with elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so the, the points I'm making in this piece are about what are called consociationalism and, and centripetalism. So Comoros is basically a country with three islands, and they don't see eye to eye. There's coups all the time, etc. So they came up with a policy where they would basically rotate who was in charge every five years. So island one would have five years in power, and then they would rotate, and they would wait 10 more years, and then they would have uh, another go at the at, at ruling, basically, right? So every... every uh, Every five years, it switches between the three islands. And the point I'm making with this piece is the problem with consociationalism in this regard is that it ends up embedding long periods where you're out of power with no possible mechanism to get back into power, right? So like Island 2, after they finish, knows that it will not be back in charge for another 10 years. That is what it's like to be a Democrat in the Americans in, in, in America right now when looking at the Supreme Court. Because there is no mechanism under the current system by which they could plausibly retake the Supreme Court for probably a generation. And that's a central problem in a democracy, right? Because that's the safety valve that that elections provide normally is that, okay, you hate Trump, but just wait four years and you've got another bite at the apple. 
And with the Supreme Court, that's just no longer true. These things are embedded because of the lifetime appointments. So that's the sort of lesson that I, I draw from that is that this creates the risk of political unrest and violence if there is no safety valve to change something that's deeply unpopular. And then the, the second point is, is from Fiji, which is this idea of um, trying to basically create centrist forces in a very, very polarized environment to try to depoliticize something. So in Fiji, they have ethnic divides, they have political violence and so on. And what they decided to do was something called you know, ranked choice voting, but with ethnic parties, basically, it would force the various ethnic parties to make overtures to the other ethnic parties because they want to be the second choice, right? And this idea is one where if you engineer a system, you can try to create incentives to create outreach to the other side and so on. Now, in the Supreme Court, if you were to raise the threshold for confirmation significantly higher than what it is now, you would start to have a, a sort of depolarization because if you had to have, let's say, 80 votes to approve someone, then that would create a, a stronger pull for both parties to just say, let's be deferential if you pick someone who's sort of in the mainstream of the left wing when you're a Democratic president and we pick someone who's in the mainstream of the right wing when you have a Republican president, that would help a bit, right? So that's one idea. Of course, there's a lot of details to iron out, which I talk about in the piece, but it's, you know, th these are the kinds of things that we have to think about because this, the current system is so broken that I do not believe that packing the court alone will fix the problem. I think you have to do systemic reform and fundamentally change what the Supreme Court means. In the meantime, we are stuck with this course. What are the big cases that are coming up? I mean, I've read a lot about how um, same-sex marriage could potentially be under threat. What should we be keeping an eye out for? Pretty much every social protection that exists. Um, you know, I, there, there are ideas out there. I don't know if this is going to happen, but same-sex marriage is obviously one of them that it could be struck down and therefore that like with abortion, you'd have a patchwork of laws based on states, which creates you know significant harm depending on where you live. You could have uh, the, the one that I think will, will really rock American politics is things like over-the-counter birth control and so on. These, these, sort of, these sort of aspects of reproductive health that are not directly tied to abortion and are more widespread and common, that type of stuff is under attack potentially on the right. And so there, there are so many things that you think about with modern American, you know, social protections. The base of Trump's party, uh, the Republican Party, is is one where I think they want to dismantle a lot of this, and I think they want to dismantle legal protections at the federal level because they much more prefer to have state-based decision making, which you know, with abortion, has created a massively unequal system that is fundamentally dangerous for some women who are basically denied healthcare based on where they live. And in some places, you know, people have, I think quite plausibly, I think it's fair to say that the, the, the role, the rollback of Roe v. Wade has killed women who otherwise would not have died because they were not given proper healthcare. Well, clearly this is going to be a huge part of the, of the, the coverage of American politics, particularly in the run up to um, the presidential election. Brian, thank you for joining me in the Bunker USA. Thanks for having me. You can find Brian's Substack at uh, the Garden of Forking Paths at forkingpaths.co. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you found what you heard useful, then please do consider supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Uh, you'll get every podcast a day early and our new Patreon backers merchandise has just dropped. So you'll definitely want to take a look at that. Thanks for listening. Bunker USA is back this time next week. And there's a bunker tomorrow as well. See you next time. The Bunker USA was presented by Podmasters Group Editor, Andrew Harrison. The Managing Editor was Jacob Jarvis. 
and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson and Simon Williams, The Bunker, is a Podmasters production.